All right, we are in uh, Romans chapter 12. We started that chapter last week. And uh, and as I got began studying those uh, first couple of verses, I decided that first we were going to do uh, the two verses and then last week before class even started, I decided that we would just focus last week on verse 1 and this week on verse 2. And somebody said to me last week after class that when I said I was only going to do one verse, they couldn't believe I could I could talk about one verse for a full hour, but I proved her wrong. <laughs> uh, but uh, so at any rate, uh, we did actually, and we covered a lot of material. And uh, today I want to spend another whole hour or however long we are together uh, on uh, one verse, and that's verse two. So, uh, but let's read these two verses. They really go together, so we don't want to separate them, even though we're studying them separately. Uh, He says, and remember, this is coming on the heels of all that he said about the mercy of God and God's providence, God's sovereignty and working in salvation history. He says in 1132, he says, so that he might show mercy to all. And uh, so it's in this context of this great mercy of God that he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship or your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay? So, as I said, last week we looked at verse 1 and what are some of the things that we talked about in verse 1 last week. I know some of you were gone, so those of you who were here got to really pitch in and help us out on this. Okay, and what does that mean for those of us that aren't grammarians? Okay. Good, great way to put it. Okay, so in chapters one through eleven, he's been telling us about the gospel. He's been telling us about the way things are the way our condition as sinners and the gospel and and uh, and how God has provided a way of salvation and how he works that out and the implications of the gospel in our lives in chapter eight, etc., etc. So chapters one through eleven are the way things are. And then beginning in chapter twelve, he begins to say in view of the way things are, in view of these things that we know in chapters one through eleven, uh, how should we then live, to quote Francis Schaeffer. And uh, so chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 particularly are, are how shall we live in view of these things, okay? So, uh, uh, so uh, Sarah said, we go from the indicative to the imperative, okay? What else did we talk about? If they were very familiar with sacrifices that... They weren't familiar with a living sacrifice. Everything that they sacrificed died. Okay. 
Great. Okay. So Paul is enjoining us to present our bodies a living sacrifice. And we spent a lot of time talking about the whole historical context of this idea of sacrifice. And that within, within the whole world, particularly within the Roman world, uh, sacrifice was a central issue <laughs> you know, to uh, kind of like uh, football is to us today, maybe more so. Okay? It was a central issue of their lives. It, it permeated every aspect of their lives, uh, but it would always involve the, what we call a blood sacrifice or it involved the death of the, of the thing being sacrificed, whether it was an animal. In many cases, as we saw last week, it was even human sacrifices that were being made. Okay? And, uh, and, and so there's this context, this idea of sacrifice, but Paul is introducing a new concept of sacrifice. And why is this, why is this new idea of sacrifice even necessary? What's, what's happened to the idea, to the concept of blood sacrifice? Okay, it's no longer needed. And so we see that Christianity presents this radical new view within this world. As we talked about, uh, one, uh, one scholar talks about the fact that all the, all the ancient cities were founded in, in, in the, on the idea of sacrifice or were centered around the idea of sacrifice. And, and so all the way around the Mediterranean, from Carthage to Jerusalem to Ephesus to Rome, all the major cities are focused on this idea of a blood sacrifice. And then you have the, you have the, uh, the, the uh, development of this radical new way of viewing things in which blood sacrifice comes to an end. And so the Christian world, the Christian church is born and it's born on the concept that there has been one final ultimate blood sacrifice, which is, of course, Christ, and that that then brings an end to the need for sacrifice. And so we talked about that and we talked about uh, we talked about how as the church grew and became more influential within the Roman world, this, this provided or this produced a, a tension within the Roman world and within the Roman uh, social order that you have these people who no longer sacrifice. Why, why did that create a tension in the Roman world? Why in the city of, excuse me, why in the city of Rome particularly if you if you have a group of people who no longer sacrifice, why does that create a tension? Because the cities themselves were founded around religious centers which derived pagan worship. Okay. Pagan worship and sacrifice. Okay. Okay. That's true. So so there to some degree their identity is wrapped up in this idea of sacrifice. But there's a, there's in addition to that there's another reason. Okay, okay. The whole idea of these blood sacrifices is to appease the gods, to secure the mercy and the favor of the gods. And now you have this group of people here in the city of Rome who refuse to sacrifice. It's not just that they don't sacrifice, but they are principally against the idea of blood sacrifice. And so they are considered to be atheists. They're considered to be people who don't believe in God because they don't worship the Roman gods. They don't serve the Roman gods. They don't sacrifice to the Roman gods. And so this is actually a national security threat. Okay, it's a national security threat. You've got these people who refuse to sacrifice because they maintain that the final 
ultimate satisfaction sacrifice has been made in the person of Jesus. Okay, So there's this radical new view that develops. And eventually, as we said last week, this permeates and begins to influence the Roman Empire. And you get to the point in the early part of the 4th century when, the, uh, when Constantine is converted to Christ at about the time that he becomes emperor. And... Uh, and, uh, and he begins to implement certain things in view of his new Christian worldview, if you want to call it that. Uh, and one of the things that he does is he begins to uh, outlaw or to ban blood sacrifices. So today, you know, in the world today, we think, you know, we don't think about blood sacrifices at all. It's just not practiced in the, in the modern world today. Certainly in the Western world, it's not practiced. We don't think about it. We don't do it. But we largely, what we have, we have the church and Constantine to thank for that because, uh, because it was, it was just like I said, it was just so prevalent within the entire uh, certainly within the entire uh, Roman world and most of the rest of the world as well uh, in the first and second, third centuries and long before that, actually from the time of, of uh, Cain and Abel. So, so these are some of the things that we talked about. Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about a living sacrifice there in verse 1? That's to do with um, the body mm-hmm. and that um, the body is our with the world. Mm-hmm. And so we actually have two things in this verse one that are really a radical departure from the world in which Paul is operating and the world in which most of these Christians live. The first one is this idea of sacrifice. And the second is the idea of the value and the worth and the holiness and the goodness of the human body. Okay, the physical world. And so Paul is enjoining us as Christians. We no longer offer blood sacrifices, but we do have a sacrifice that we offer as worship to God. And that's our bodies. And as Sarah was pointing out, we talked about the fact that our bodies, that's the way we interface with the world. You know, we have the inner person, we have our souls, but, you know, and, and we, we talk about being, you know, kind of soul uh, friends or, or soulmates or whatever. But in reality, the only way soulmates communicate with one another is through the body, right? They communicate through their eyes and their ears and their mouths. And, and by their gestures and by physical touch and things like that. That's the way we interact with the world. And apart from the body, the inner man cannot interact with the material world. Okay. And what Paul is teaching us is that though the final blood sacrifice, that sacrifice which satisfies the wrath of God and secures for us the mercy of God, even though that has been made, that there is an ongoing perpetual we could even say a repeated sacrifice that we make of our bodies as a living sacrifice. So we don't kill our bodies as a sacrifice to God, but in appreciation, as Paul says, in view of the mercy that we have received, we offer our bodies on a daily living basis, acting out, as we're going to see in verse 2, the will of God, which is the acceptable service. It's the acceptable worship. So before... 
if you were going to think about Cain and Abel and you had uh, you had two men, they came and they presented sacrifices to God and one sacrifice was acceptable and one sacrifice was not acceptable to God. Okay, well, there were reasons in that context for those two sacrifices, uh, uh, one to be acceptable, one not to be acceptable. But think about that illustration and apply it today that there is an acceptable sacrifice that God wants from us and that's for us to be living out through our bodies, through our material bodies, to be living out His will, performing His will within the world and that's how we worship God. So we don't simply worship God by coming to church once a week and going into the sanctuary and sitting there and singing songs and listening to His sermon. That's part of our worship But that's only a very small, tiny part of our worship. Our worship of God, our adoration and our praise and our thanksgiving to Him is expressed on a daily basis as we live out through our bodies what we're going to talk about in verse 2, the will of God. Okay? So, uh, anything else we talked about last week that you want to mention? Rick, I don't know if you you talked about this, but you talked all around it here just now. I'll just point this obvious thing out that the... This the shift in emphasis from sacrificing something that's out there, mm-hmm. animals or whatever, to yeah. out yourself. Yeah, that is that is yes. pretty pretty big uh, shift. Yes, right there. He doesn't like talk about it as, as such a shift, but it's pretty clear that that is the essence of it. Yes, exactly. It's the shift between a vicarious sacrifice where you're offering something else. And the reason we do that is because they had to be a blood sacrifice and we didn't want to do that with ourselves. Okay, So we had to offer a vicarious sacrifice, but now we no longer have to offer a vicarious sacrifice. We actually get to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Okay? Well, let's go on then. He, we, uh, in verse 2, he says, "...and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect." And, and I do believe uh, that verse 2 is really kind of an explanation of how we do verse 1. In verse 1, we are enjoined to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice and the question is, how do we do that? How can we do that? And verses 1 and 2 really kind of set the foundation for everything that's going to follow in the following chapters. Because he's going to be giving us a lot of practical instructions on the will of God, on all kinds of things, from our relationship to government, to our relationship to other believers in the church, to the issue of love, just all kinds of areas that he's going to address in the next several chapters. And all of them are rooted in this idea of being a living sacrifice, not being conformed to the world, but rather having our minds transformed, uh, as he says in verse 2. So these are foundational verses, and verse 2 is really, I believe, the means by which we accomplish verse 1. It's what we have to do. We have to do what verse 2 says in order to be living sacrifices to God. And verse 2 is made up of two commandments, or two, or we might say a two-part command, okay? And the one part is negative, which is what? Do not be conformed to the world. Do not be conformed to this world, okay? And we'll explore that in some depth. And then the second part of the command is positive, has a positive uh, tone to it, and that is what? Be transformed by the renewing of your minds, okay? Uh, 
and so that's that's uh, uh, this twofold command. If we if we can if we can get a handle on this, then we're going to be able to offer our bodies as a, we're going to be able to figure out how to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice if we can carry out verse two in our experience. Okay. Now, so he starts by telling us not to be conformed to this world, and and he uses a word here. Which uh, uh, it's actually a, a preposition and then a root word, uh, and the and the preposition is uh, the preposition uh, translated in English would be with or alongside of that idea is the preposition soon, and uh, and then the word itself the root word is uh, schematio okay, uh, which means to assume a form, to assume a pattern or something like that okay. Uh, but when you hear that word schizomazio, uh, what, what does that sound like? What English word does that sound like to you that we use? Pardon? Well, yeah, but that's not the one. <laughs> You're right, it does sound like that. And I'm, I'm slaughtering the Greek pronunciation there, by the way. But it's, uh, uh, it's uh, schizomazio. Schizomazio. Schematic, exactly, okay. And in English, we talk about a schematic. What are we talking about? Okay, it's a blueprint or drawing. Typically, it has to do with what area? Electronics, Electronics and electricity, right? So if you, have a, if you have a television set or a computer or something and you want to work on it, you want to fix it, one of the first things you have to do uh, if it's some kind of an electrical short circuit or uh, uh, I was going to say a bad transistor. Now, that's ancient, isn't it? Uh, but if it's one of those things, what's the first thing you have to do if you want to fix one of these things? You have to look at the schematic, okay? And you've probably all seen a schematic at, at one time or another, an electronic or an electrical schematic. What do they look like? A bunch of lines and symbols that don't make any sense, do they? You look at them and you go, okay, I can figure this out. And you take one look at it and you go, I have no clue, okay? But it is this very detailed drawing of how this particular instrument or piece of equipment is designed to work. Where all these wires go and 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 where all the circuits are and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, and I don't even understand all that stuff. Uh, there we go. <laughs> okay, yeah, good, yeah. So, uh, so when we think in terms of, he says, do not be conformed to this world. I like to think in that term. Now, when the the term in Greek doesn't actually mean a schematic drawing, but it gets you. That's where we get our term from. It comes from that Greek term, and the idea is a form or a pattern. Okay. And what he's saying here is, he says, I don't want you to be. I don't want you to be uh, to fit into this schematic or this form, this pattern that the world has for you. Okay. So I like to make a verb out of it, and and I like to paraphrase this this verse: Do not be schematicized, <laughs> or do not let the world schematicize you. In other words, the world has a pattern of the way it thinks your life ought to function. The world has a pattern of the way it thinks you ought to live. And it will do whatever it can 
within its power to ensure that you live according to that schematic. Okay? And Paul's injunction is, do not let yourself be schematicized. Okay? Don't let yourself be forced into that schematic. Now, J.B. Phillips has a translation. It's very popular. Paraphrase, I should say. It's very popular. And even I I came across it in uh, several commentators thought it was a good representation of what the verse says here. And he puts it this way. He says, do not let the world squeeze you into its own mold. Some of you have heard that paraphrase before, probably. Do not let the world squeeze you into its own mold. So if you don't like the idea or picture of a schematic, just think of a mold. Okay, and the world has a mold for your life, and it wants to. Yeah, you get this picture. It just wants to force you, squeeze you down into that mold, you know. And when you got parts or ways you live that stick outside that mold, it wants to force you down into that mold. It wants to form you to look the way it wants you to look. You know, Rick, I, I think it's a whole your your. Uh word picture I think is a little good for us as Christians but I think it's a lot more subtle than that because I think if we do nothing that's what we get if we do nothing if we don't take action we will be conformed to the world we don't have to be forced and squeezed we just do it naturally that's the default yes it's true but we have to remember he's writing to believers right exactly that's what I say yeah uh, but that's a very good point. And we'll talk some about this, about this in, about the whole internal aspect. But the idea is, uh, so, you, so you're right in that. When, 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 when uh, Phillips translated, be squeezed into, that idea is not there. What he's just saying is don't let it happen. Now, he, he, uses, uh, he uses both with the word conformed here and the word transformed. He uses a voice. Again, getting into grammar here. He's using a voice in Greek. It's either passive or middle. In English, we have two voices. We have active and passive. And uh, active is you are doing something to something else. The boy threw the ball or you threw the ball. Okay, that's active voice. And then we have the passive voice. You caught the ball or you received the ball or the ball was thrown to you. And that's kind of the passive that's being done to you. Okay, and that's the passive voice. And in uh, Greek, you have a middle voice that's kind of right in the middle between the active and the passive. Okay, and the problem in Greek between the middle and the passive voice, you can't tell the difference. <laughs> so it's very hard to know whether or not it's in the middle voice or the passive voice. So if you look this word up in these words up in your uh, in a Greek lexicon, you'll say you'll see it'll say middle or passive. Okay, and the middle voice. Uh, has this connotation of, uh, now I'm no Greek expert here, so I'm groping for a way to explain this, uh, but it has the idea that, uh, that the subject is taking some action, but in some way that action is coming back and influencing the subject. Okay? So the, so the active voice, the, the, the subject is acting on the object, and in the passive voice, uh, the subject is being acted upon. In the passive voice, the subject is acting, but somehow it's coming back on him. Okay? So we don't, we don't know here for sure whether this is in the passive or in the middle voice. All right? but, but what's clear is, is there's something that we are to do and it has some bearing on the way we turn out. Okay? So... 
It has some influence. So, so maybe it's in the middle voice. But like I say, we don't know for sure. But the idea is Paul is giving us a commandment to do something in order that there might be an outcome in our life of not being conformed to the world, but instead of being transformed. Okay. So, so we have this injunction then to whatever, whatever we're supposed to do, and we'll explore this more in detail in a, in, a, in a few minutes, but whatever it is we're supposed to do, it should result in us not ending up looking like the world. Okay? And he uses this term world, but if you'll notice in your footnotes, if you've got footnotes in your Bible, there's, a, there's probably a little indication there of the alternate translation of that word, which is what? Age. Okay? So it can be translated either way. And, uh, and so the idea is... The idea is that in this world that we live in, it is in a certain age. Remember last week we talked a little bit about realm transfer and how when we became Christians we were transferred out of one realm into another realm. And we talked about how the inner man was transferred out of the realm of darkness into the realm of God's glorious light. Okay, But that unfortunately our bodies kind of got left behind. Our bodies are still in the old realm or this old age, okay? The age, this period of time before Christ comes back and establishes His, his, uh, his rule and, and totally changes and alters the world. That's the new age. And that's the age in which our spirits live. That's, that's the values and the ideas and the thoughts of, of the spirit that God has caused to dwell in us. But our bodies are still in this Old age. Now, don't take that personally. <laughs> For some of us, more older age than others. Okay, but you get what I mean. It's the it's the it's the existing age, the age that's passing away. And the idea that I was talking about last week is how we need to learn to bring our bodies along, so that our bodies no longer act like they're in the old age, but act like they're in the new age. Okay. Well. So this is kind of the idea when Paul uses this word here. It's an idea that means this whole, this whole world and its whole present mentality, the way it thinks now. In Corinthians, he talks about it as this present evil age. Okay, using the same word that's translated world here in, in Romans chapter 12. So we have this present evil age and and uh, and he tells us that there is a god of this age, or there is a god of this world. He talks about again. He, uh, Paul, in another place, talks about how how the god of this age, or the god of this world, has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving, so that they won't see and understand the gospel. Okay. So this this age in which we live has a God, which of course is Satan, okay? And, and that God is deceiving people in any way he can in order to keep them from understanding and knowing the gospel and believing the gospel. It is the present evil age and the God of this present evil age, okay? Now, so when Paul is talking about 
do not be conformed to this world. He's not talking in a strictly materialistic sense of the world or a, or a sense that has to do with the material world. But he's, having, but he's talking about just this, this whole way we think and live within this age. And the whole world does that. Okay? The whole world thinks and operates in certain ways in this age and will until this age passes away and a new age comes in its place. And that is what Paul tells us we are not to be conformed to. We are not to be conformed to this present evil age. And the, and the schematic, if you will, or the mold, if you will, that it has, that it says you ought to live by. Okay? And of course, as Jim pointed out, we're all born in that age. <laughs> and we were born identifying with that age. So... We really, when we started out, we started out conforming to that age. Okay? And Paul says, I don't want you to be conformed to that age. I don't want you to be conformed to that world. So, uh, there were um, a couple questions that come to my mind as I think about this. And, uh, and, and one of them is, how do we experience, to, because we, as Jim pointed out, we, we just, we, you know, it's a default position, as, uh, uh, as we said. It's kind of our default position. But in another sense, even for those who might be inclined to live lives different, there is this constant pressure that the world puts on us to live its way, right? So whether you're... You know, at any point in which you think, well, I don't want to live, you've, you've got this pressure. And the question I was asking myself is, how is, how do we in our lives experience the world forcing us into its mold? What are some of the ways we feel that pressure? TV magazines or TV commercials. Okay, so in the media, we see it all the time, don't we? The media presenting to us an image of how you ought to live your life. Okay? It's establishing the social norms. And it expects you to live according to the social norms. And so the media is pretty... How else do we experience it? Where else does this pressure come from in our lives? Okay. Friends, co-workers, people like that that were around... And uh, if we as Christians try to live a certain way and it doesn't fit with the world's schematic, if it doesn't fit with the world's mode, uh, they speak up. They, you know, they say a word or two to you or other things. So oftentimes just the world we, the people we associate with in the world. How else do we feel? Such? The government. Yeah, the government has ways that it wants its society to act and live, okay? We'll discuss this in some detail later in Romans, and there are many ways in which that's a good thing. And Paul will make that very clear. But there are other ways at times in which government gets out of hand, and it has ideas of how we ought to live, uh, and it pressures us to live that way, even though it may not be uh, the way we ought to live. What are some other ways? Somebody back here? Education, okay. The educational institutions, uh, the whole educational system has got a way that it's trying to influence the direction it's trying to push us. What else? With families, like 
if you're born into a Buddhist family or a Islam family, or they expect you to do certain things. Okay. I, I, I think families sometimes present the greatest pressure for us to live according to the world. And here's one we may not think about very often, but we probably ought to, is sometimes fellow Christians oftentimes are pressuring us to be conformed to the world in areas where maybe they've conformed to the world and they're uncomfortable when we don't. And so oftentimes it's from even Christians, sometimes well-meaning Christians, who pressure us to live according to the form and the schematic of the world. Okay. So there's a whole, whole area of ways in which we feel this pressure that, uh, that the world has, that the way it works in our lives. And we just mentioned a few here. Now, what I want to do is I want to do a little brainstorming here for a couple of minutes. And, uh, and, I, and, and I want to ask you uh, to give me... Uh, to give me a list of what are some of the areas in which the world has a schematic, it has a mold, it has a way it thinks we ought to live that may not really coincide with the way with uh, the way we know God wants us to live. Okay. So what I want what I want to do is I just want to list a bunch of areas up here. And to give you a hint, I've got almost thirty of them on my sheet here. Okay. So there, what are some of the areas? And I don't want to I don't want to take time to explore how the world thinks or views these areas. I just want to list the areas just so we get an idea. So what are some of the areas that pop into your mind that the world has a way it wants you to live or a way it wants you to think uh, that may not be compatible with Scripture? Psychology. Psychology, okay. So he starts with the hardest one to spell, okay. Finances. Finances, okay. What else? Family in general, as far as like whether it's, you only have one child or well, if you don't want a child. Okay, family. Morality. Morality. And I don't know if you're thinking in this terms, but I'm. But when I see that, I thought of the whole idea of sexuality. Is that what you had in mind, or yes. or are you thinking more broadly than that? Okay. Okay. Yes. So I'll I'll put I'll put them as separate because morality is really a broader term than sexuality. But but when we think of morality, we often think of sexuality. What else? Career. Career. Okay. Entertainment. Entertainment. And as, as we list this, just think, just in your own mind, think, is, is this an area in which the world has a pattern that may not coincide with what God has? Well, education or how much you're going to get. Education. How much? What it should consist of? You know, what are our attitudes towards it? Et cetera, et cetera. What else? The role of government. Okay, government. We'll also break out military. Okay, I'll just put it down there. I think that's a great one. I have that on my list. Uh, 
Because the world has a view of what religion ought to be and the way it ought to work, you know. What you know about going to church and prayer and all, you know, has a view about religion, and and oftentimes that's at odds with uh, with the bi- biblical view of religion. Pardon? Okay, I was going to put down the environment. Okay, our whole attitude towards the environment. I have that on my list. Okay, money. Okay, uh, that, well, that's finances here. Okay, all right. Death and dying. Uh, I had a, a, a close, a, a good friend, a customer of mine, an older woman, and she lost her husband here just a couple weeks ago. And uh, and uh, as she was telling me about her experience of her husband dying, I thought, okay, now I would not have handled that the way she handled it. You know, the whole subject of death and dying. Okay, what else? What? Pardon? Okay. Life. Uh, The value of it. Uh, Even the meaning of life. Okay. Marriage. Okay, that's related to family, but it's really a different area. Pardon? Climatology. Climatology. That might be one we need to think about. Exactly. You said we're brainstorming, right? Yes. Climatology. Is that, you know, where they do your fingernails and stuff? Oh, that's cosmetology. Okay. <laughs> okay. What else? What are some others? Okay. So, origins. Okay. Cosmology. Cosmology. Uh, yeah, the universe. Yes, that's true. Cosmo- okay. Uh, cosmology has to do with our understanding. Cosmology. <laughs> I'm not. Okay. Others? Law. Law, I have that on my list. Our whole view of law is, uh, and not thinking of it in terms of Romans, the book of Romans law, but just law in general, like he's talking about there, uh, we have a different view of that than the world does. We ought to anyway. What else? Work. Okay, employment and work. Uh, Not just employment, but all types of work. That's good. Y'all are coming up with a bunch I have on my list here. Music. Music. Okay, that relates to the area of entertainment to some degree. I might just make this a more general category. Our attitude towards the arts. Okay. 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 Ed quit. There, I got it. <laughs> Pardon? Hope. Okay, I had down the word future, the whole idea of our future. Okay, which would be connected to the idea of hope. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, diet uh, and and drinking. Sure. Well, we'll just throw it in there in that area. Okay. Beauty. Okay. Okay. Well, we could go on. Let me just read through my list uh, here. The things we don't already have up there. I've got the question of revenge. Uh, I've got the question of freedom. I've got the question of greatness. What is greatness? Uh, I've got the question of our response to evil. 
Uh, I've got the question of relationships in general, a question of leadership, uh, the question of our possessions, uh, uh, the question of inner attitudes versus outward actions, uh, the question of personal worth, the question of ambition, the question of crime and punishment, which is related to law, of course, the question of community, the question of... uh, of, uh, Gender roles, okay? These are all areas, okay? So when we look at that, and then we think that Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, and we look at this list, what do you think? (laughs) We've got our work cut out for us, don't we? Because in every area of life, it seems like, the world's got a different idea of how we're to live than God does. And we are tasked in Romans 12.2 with the job of figuring out how not to be conformed to the world. So Paul then gives us the alternative. Well, wait a minute. I had another question here uh, before we get to the alternative. The first question I had asked was, uh, what were some ways in which the world brings pressure on us in these areas of life? Okay, and and uh, well, I won't even use that illustration because we've already thought about this a lot. But the next question that comes to my mind is why? Why should we avoid conformity to the world? Paul says, I don't want you to be conformed to the world. And the question is, why shouldn't I be conformed to the world? I mean, what does it hurt if the world says I ought to live this way or this way or this way in one of these areas or any of the areas that we haven't listed here uh, in the many areas of life? Why should I not be conformed to the world? Okay. Okay. Explain what you mean. Okay. Okay. Well, that's the first. That's the most obvious reason, isn't it? That the world's pattern does not conform to the will of God. Sarah, you're going to say. It's a completely different realm. Okay. It's it's that different realm again. Yeah. Go ahead. It's completely separate. Yeah. There is no point of contact because of the fall. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. And in verse 1 in there, he says that he is explaining why you do this because you want to do what is acceptable yes. to God and it's a, a way of worship. Yeah, yeah. It is how we worship. It's, but I'm going to explain in a minute. It's not that we worship by not being like this, but we worship by how we are. And I'll explain that distinction in just a minute. Okay? But... Something else came to my mind because in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, in verse 4, when he, I was using that verse earlier uh, where he talks about, he uses that word age or world that he uses in, in chapter 12 of Romans. But, but he says something there in 2 Corinthians 4 4. He talks about the God of this world has blinded their eyes. Okay. So all these. The way the world thinks in all these areas and all the other areas that we haven't listed up here that we could list, okay, 
in all these areas, the world is blinded by the God of this world. So in every one of these areas, the world has very good reasons why you ought to do what it says you ought to do in these areas. It's got its reasons. But it's been blinded by the God of this world. And specifically, he has blinded us. He has blinded the world in all of these areas. He's blinded them. He's distorted realities. So in any one of these areas, you could probably say, well, they've got a little bit of truth, but just enough truth to make them dangerous, right? Okay. So he's taken that little bit of truth and he's distorted it in every single one of these areas we've listed and more for a purpose. He's done it for a reason so that they might not understand and believe the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.4 And what that means is, when I think and act this way, the world's way in these areas, when I do that, something's happening to me as a believer, as a Christian in relationship to the gospel. I am losing my grasp on the gospel. Not losing my salvation, but I'm losing my grasp on the gospel. I'm losing my grasp on the significance and the meaning and the implications of the gospel in my life. Now, I don't want that to happen, do you? So, if I don't want that to happen, I shouldn't be conformed to this world. That's one thing. But the other side of that is not only when I live that way, conformed to the world, not only is my perception of the gospel distorted or diminished, but those around me who watch the way I live. What's happening? If I take the area of marriage or take the area of death and dying or take the area of finances and money, any one of those areas, if I just live the way the world says I ought to live, and I have a worldly neighbor or a worldly family member, and they watch me live that way, the way the world lives in finances and money and in death and dying and whatever the other ones, when, if I live the way the world lives in that area, what happens to my to my neighbor or my friend or my family member who lives in that world and they watch me, what happens to them? Okay? They don't see a difference. I am actually reinforcing in their mind the deception that the God of the world, this world, has foisted upon them. I'm actually reinforcing them that in them to the effect that it is obscuring the gospel. So I may be witnessing to them. I may be sharing the four spiritual laws or the Roman road or the bridge illustration. I may be telling them the gospel, but all the while I am reinforcing their blindness. If nothing else, you may be feeding their thinking of the, I'm good enough. Well, oh, great. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. So, so this whole idea of conforming the world has profound implications in our own life and in the life of those people we rub shoulders with. Paul doesn't want us doing that. So, what's the answer? I'm going to leave that up there for a minute. What is the answer? 
He says, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed. Now, Paul uses an interesting term here. Or I should say, it's interesting what term Paul does not use here. Because he actually had a Greek term here he could use that would be translated into English in a way that's very familiar to us. He's talking about conformity and he doesn't want us to be conformed. And so you would think his admonition would be to be what? Conformed. Pardon? Conformed differently. Or non-conformed, right? Non-conformed. And he actually had a Greek word that could be translated. Do not be conformed to this world, but be a non-conformist. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't... The alternative to conformity to the world is not... The Christian alternative is not non-conformity. You see, as we look at all these areas and we go, okay, the world says... And I want... And I think... You know, okay, I got my work cut out for me. So the easiest thing to go out is figure out, okay, what does the world say about how I do finances and money? And if I don't want to be conformed to that, I'll just do the opposite. And in every one of these areas, I'll just do the opposite of what the world is. And then I'll be a nonconformist. What's the problem with that? Why doesn't Paul use that option? Because that may still not be the way God has got it. Okay? It's still thinking you're still letting the world dictate how you think. You're letting the world dictate how you think. The world says, do this, and you say, okay, they say do this, and so I'm going to do just the opposite, and who's dictated? You know, their standard is, is still controlling my decisions. I'm still living in the world. Not only that, I cannot use natural man's thinking in order to solve the problem. I have to have a supernatural Absolutely. Absolutely. So somehow I've got to get out of this context of this age. And being a nonconformist doesn't get me out of this context of this age. I got another reason not to be a nonconformist. Have any of you ever known a nonconformist? They're very belligerent, typically. They're very annoying people, aren't they? <laughs> They're really annoying. Okay. Another reason, too, is some of my said, well, some of what the world has is right. So, for instance, in marriage, if you're going to be a non-conformist, you say, I don't believe in marriage. Yeah. Which would be even worse. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As we see in our culture today, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, Exactly, exactly. So, they're all, so, so we can see some reasons why Paul has avoided this term, right? Because it's not the answer to the problem. And it doesn't get us in the place of being a living and holy sacrifice to God. So our alternative is not nonconformity, but what? Transformation. Okay. And Paul uses a word here, the root word from which we get the um, English term what? Do you know? Metamorphosis. Okay. He uses the term. He uses the term here, the root of which we get. We get our word metamorphosis. And the idea is this very deep inward transformation that works its way out throughout our whole life, through our, through our actual physical bodies. Okay? It's, it's actually the same word that's used in Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when it says he was transfigured before. Same Greek word. 
Okay, so there's this transformation that we are enjoined to. Okay, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So what that means is, as uh, Mike was pointing out, what that means is that as Christians, there are some areas in which we may look very much like the world. And we don't sweat that. I mean, some of us may go to OU football games and root for OU, right? Okay. We don't sweat that. Some of us may go to McDonald's and eat a Big Mac. Some of us may get up at 8 o'clock in the morning, or 6 o'clock in the morning, go to work at 8 o'clock in the morning, and come home at 5, okay? That's the world. The whole world does that. You do that. No sweat. You know, you don't have to be an uncle just because the rest of the world goes to work from 8 to 5. You don't have to go to work from midnight till 8 in the morning. You know, that doesn't make you spiritual. Okay? So there are many ways in which we as Christians will look just like the world. That's not the issue. The issue is not looking like or not looking like the world. The issue is looking like Christ. Being conformed into the image of Christ. And if that means I wear basically the same kind of clothes that the people around me wear. I remember when, when I was much younger and I was very active in, in, in ministry on campus over at OU. And there was, a, there was a group of Christians, at least they said they were Christians, I don't really know, who, who would travel around from campus to campus and they would preach on campuses and things like that, much like we were doing too, as far as preaching is concerned. But, but they felt they had to be different than the world. And so they dressed, in, they dressed in first century garb. They wore robes and stuff. We call them the robe people. Cause they, and, and they came on campus dressed, you know, looking like first century people. Well, it had a great effect for the gospel, right? I mean, it just won all kinds of people to Christ, right? It's no big deal that I dress like the world as long as I don't dress immodestly like many in the world dress, right? So, transformity takes us out of that thing of trying to measure myself by how the world does everything and puts me in a place of simply asking, what is the will of God? What is God's will in, in my life? So, we have then this admonition to go through this process of metamorphosis. And it is, I want to stress, a process. Okay? So this is not a one-time event. It's not that we just get saved and suddenly we've just shed all these ways that the world thinks and we just, all of a sudden, we just think the way God thinks on everything. Has anybody experienced that? I haven't. In fact, I'm really excited at this point in my life and, and I may not be the oldest person in here, but I'm close to it. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm excited that at this point in my life, I'm still having the opportunity to go through this metamorphosis. And I am conscientiously doing things in my life to ensure that this metamorphosis is going on today at the age of 65, very soon to be 66. Okay? So it's not something that's done at one point in the past or done when you're young and then you get there and you've achieved it, but it's a process. It's an ongoing process. Now, how does it happen? How does this metamorphosis take place, according to Paul? By the renewing of the mind. Now, some commentators get, uh, get real, uh, uh, think there's a lot of importance here, I should say, on, on, the, on the external versus the internal. Because the, 
the, the word there, conformity, conjures up ideas of externalness, okay? And more, metamorphosis conjures up ideas of an internal transformation. And so they, they, some commentators put a lot of emphasis on the difference between the external and the internal. I, I think that's a little misplaced because I think we can establish pretty quickly that in all of these areas, the problem is far more internal than it is external, right? It's the whole idea of how we think, where our minds are, okay? In all these areas we just listed. So this problem of conformity to the world has a lot more to do with internally the way I think than externally the way I act. Okay. So I don't think Paul's drawing a big contrast here between external contact and con, uh, conduct and internal conduct. I think the real issue in Paul's mind is the agent of change or the agent of action. And in one case, it's the world acting on me. And in another case, it's this there's another agent or agents that are acting on me to renew my mind. The implication, of course, is that my mind needs to be renewed. The way I naturally think does not conform to the will of God. So there is a process of renewal that I have to go through. And specifically, it's a renewal of the mind. A lot of Christians dismiss the importance of the mind and the importance of, of study and the importance of knowledge. But Paul does not dismiss that. It's very important. And crucial to this transformation is a renewal of how I think. That means I have to go through some process that alters my thinking patterns. I've got to do something that changes the way I think if I'm going to be free from this scheme, this schematic that the world has for me, or this mold that the world has for me that's so natural to me, that comes so second nature, it's such a default position for me. How am I going to get free from that? The only way I'm going to get free from that is if I go through a lifelong process of having my thinking patterns changed. Well, how does that happen? The Scriptures teach us that there are two agents of that change. What are they? Okay, one is the Holy Spirit. He has given us the Holy Spirit and, and He speaks specifically of the Holy Spirit working this renewing in us. Okay, So, the first obvious agent of this renewing process in my life is the work of the Holy Spirit. God has given me Himself. He's put Himself in me. He's given me His Holy Spirit. And His Holy Spirit is at work in me to change me. That's why and how oftentimes Christians find themselves changing and they wake up someday and they've been a little changed in some area and they go, whoa, how did that happen? Well, it happened by the work of the Holy Spirit. Working change in our life. But what's the second agent? Pardon? Uh, the Bible. Well, the believer is presupposed with that whole metal passive voice thing that we talked about earlier. So, yes, the believer is doing something. But the, the, the thing that actually brings about that change in us is the Holy Spirit working with the Word of God. So it's as we are experiencing the Holy Spirit, submitting to the Holy Spirit, and submerged in the Scriptures. 
our minds bathed with the Scriptures. The psalmist asks, how shall a young man make his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, he talks about the word of God being a sword which divides between the soul and the spirit, etc., etc., etc. So there's the, the force of the word of God working in us. In Ephesians chapter 5, he speaks of Christ cleansing the church by the washing of water with the word. So over and over again in Scripture, we have this emphasis on having our minds submerged in the Scriptures. We do this, typically, it's often pointed out, at least in five prominent ways. One is by listening to the Scriptures taught and preached. Two, by reading the Scriptures. Three, by studying the Scriptures. Four, by memorizing the Scriptures. And five, by meditating on the Scriptures. Okay, Those are five primary ways that we get the Word of God permeating our minds so that our lives are transformed to no longer be patterned after the world. Once we've done this, once we have the Holy Spirit active in our lives and, and our minds are sub- submerged in the Word of God, once that's happened, then we are able to discover the will of God. That's what he says. Verse 2. Knowing the will of God. Proving the will of God. You know, the big question people ask, particularly young people ask today, how can I know the will of God? And what they want is some nice, tight little formula. Okay? You know, this is how you know the will of God. Well, I'm sorry. It's, this may be a formula, but it ain't very tight. The activity of the Holy Spirit in my life as I am submerged in the Word of God. I've got to do those two things. And as I do that, in every situation I confront in life, all these areas that we have, in each one of these areas that I confront decisions that have to be made, I am able to know which course of action conforms to the will of God. And it's measured by three things. The will of God is identified by what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect or complete. Those are the... Those are the ways that I look at these various options that I am presented with in life. And instead of going, well, my neighbors do this and my parents did this and, and my, my friends at work, they do this. And so that's what I do. Instead of doing that, I confront a situation in life and I go, OK, Holy Spirit, I need you to direct me. Now, let me contemplate your word. Now, because this is a process, what that means is that at no point in my life am I at a point in which I'm doing this perfectly. It's an ongoing, growing process until the day I die. We're out of time, folks. So next week, we'll pick it up in verse 3.